The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. The word we used to use is relentless. It was relentless. And that will get you down after a while. And it certainly got me down. And I've got no shame in saying that. You know, I, I felt burnt out. I felt I was miserable, as my wife told me afterwards. <laughs> and, you know, I thought, you know, something's got to give here. Something's got to change. And I spoke to my manager at the time, and it was obvious that not much was going to change. So, so I thought, well, I'm going to change. Hello listeners, it's Yasmin here and welcome to another episode of The Hearing Podcast. Today my guest is Ranjit Sond, he is a lawyer at the Government Legal Department, he's also the President of the Society of Asian Lawyers. So Ranjit and I discuss many things, um, one of them being his change in area of law, he was a, a personal injury lawyer for about 20 years and then retrained. We also spoke about what does the uh, Society of Asian Lawyers actually do? What do they offer their members? What kind of events do they hold? And we also spoke about the fact that he was the first in his family to study law and what led him to make that decision. So one of the things I found really interesting with my conversation with Ranjit was the fact that he carried out work experience when he was younger in a law firm. That was his first experience of ever setting foot in a law firm and it made such a deep uh, impression, impact on him that he decided there and then he wanted to be a lawyer even though he was the first in his family to study law. So it just shows the impression that we can give um, to juniors and younger people and, and being role models to them at that young age. The Hearing Ranjit Sond, it's a pleasure to have you on The Hearing Podcast. Welcome to this episode. Thank you for having me. Lovely to see you. Thank you. I want to start off with this question, which I ask most of our guests. Tell us what motivated you to get into law. I think what originally motivated me was, I think it's got something to do with my Sikh background. I'm, I'm a Sikh man. And I think, I mean, one of the kind of tenets of, kind of Sikhism is, is service to the community and kind of helping others. So I've always had that kind of embedded in me from from very young age. Um, and I so I've always wanted to help people. And then also when I was quite young, uh, a close family member went through quite a messy divorce uh, and, and I kind of got to see that quite close up and firsthand. And that that kind of spiked my interest a little bit more because, um, you know, it, it was a legal context, family law, divorce and all the arguments that go along with it. And, and I was kind of almost at a front row seat in that. So and that that really spiked my interest. So I think those are the two main things in my early years that really got me thinking about law there were no lawyers in the family so I was the first so there wasn't anyone to ask or anyone to really use as a role model in the early years but yeah those are two two main things I think yeah my kind of Sikh heritage and and this unfortunate um, which turned out quite fortunate in the end but um, you know the divorce of a close family member. And so you said you didn't have any family members who uh, studied law or practiced law um, so how how did you enter the legal profession? What was your first taste? Was it work experience or could you tell us a little bit about that? I was lucky enough, actually. So the school I went to uh, when I was in first year GCSE, my school uh, had a careers office and, and they they asked everybody in the uh, first year GCSE if they wanted to do work experience and they try to find something for you. So I, I put down, because by then I already had an interest in law. So I said, you know, a law firm, you know, if I could go to a law firm, because they already had 
connections with local GP surgeries and other other places, there's a whole range. Um, and so they were actually fortunate enough to arrange that for me. So I had one week work experience when I was, I think, 14 years old at a local law firm in East Ham, East London. And, and that was, and that was it. I was sold. <laughs> it was, it, it was a really um, eye-opening experience. You know, you're only 14 and you might think, well, they only got you to do, do um, photocopying and, and, and that's the kind of nightmare story that you hear quite a lot. But but they were really good to me. They took me to court. They really took me under their wing. So I went to court. I sat behind uh, the solicitor in the magistrate's court. It was Barking Magistrate's Court. I remember that. That's my first experience um, of court. And then I went to a Crown Court as well. I sat in on interviews. Um, I was also sent off to a um, conference with counsel. So, you know, we packed in quite a lot in that week. And, and I was really fortunate because I know a lot of my friends at school didn't have such a positive experience of that week and some were just photocopying or some were just doing the menial tasks so I was really grateful to that law firm actually and I think you know forever will be because they really cemented uh, my interest in law and so that was my first real hands-on experience and exposure and yes a law firm from East Ham that's still there actually. <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. I mean, that is encouraging because you could have a negative experience, be chained to the photocopy or doing, as you say, menial tasks. Yeah. And it could put you off potentially. Um, and you did cram a lot in in that week. That's brilliant. I think, you know, having been on the other side where I've worked in firms and you have a work experience person in, you know, um, it's quite hard to take time out sometimes to to think of real meaningful tasks for them to do or to sit in on and I always look back on my own experience and know that that was the right thing to do and that really helped me along my way so when I've been in that position I've always tr- kind of thought long and hard and and you know, try to make it interesting for them because because I know I, yeah, I mean a friend of mine was just chained to the photocopier and and he absolutely hated it you know for obvious reasons you know you're not there to do that but um and I think yeah so yeah so that was really good and yeah so it all started there for me really Yasmin. Yeah, I mean, we take it for granted, don't we? Just going to court or um, seeing a client or conference with counsel, you know, when you're 14 years old, that's quite exciting. And you're observing how people interact with each other. I mean, it's something you, we do unconsciously now, but young young people are, are watching and observing, you know, how that happens and plays out. So uh, that is really good exposure and experience for them. So that's really good to hear. So Ranjit, did you qualify in personal injury law then? Is that what you specialised in? So I qualified in, oh gosh, say my age now, 1999 <laughs> is when I qualified. And uh, I qualified, actually at the time I qualified in, it was a dual kind of thing they wanted me to do as housing law and personal injury. So I was doing both. But I soon dropped the housing law and then I, I was solely a, a claimant personal injury lawyer uh, and was for about 20 to 21 years Um uh, in a private practice, various firms, but yeah. So my background is yeah, kind of claimant PI is, is is my is my background. Yeah, and so you did that for quite a number of years, as you said. What what was it that made you? Because I know you're now working for the government legal department. So what made you make that switch? What was it that you invested all that time and that experience? What was it that made you think I want to do something completely different now? I actually got to that stage in my career when. I was actually looking to do something different. I don't know. It, it, I felt a bit, bit burnt out at one point. So, in 2015, I actually left uh, work and and took three months out over summer 
and it just kind of coincided with my kids about to start junior school so I thought actually that's quite a good time I can lead that time I think I felt that this happens a lot because I've actually since since then I've kind of spoken to a lot of colleagues and they felt the same way it sometimes gets to a point when you're in a certain profession and your certain experience certain years you know more is expected of you and for me what I found was that the work was piling up it it was relentless and my colleagues who are still at that firm and I'm going to not name the firm of course but colleagues are still there the word we used to use is relentless it was relentless and that will get you down after a while and it certainly got me down and I've got no shame in saying that you know I, I felt burnt out I felt I was miserable um as my wife told me afterwards <laughs> and you know I thought you know something's got to give here something's got to change and I spoke to my manager at the time and it was obvious that not much was going to change. So so I thought, well, I'm going to change. So I left originally, took three months out, and then I started contracting. So I was in full-time employment. Um, and then I started to um, work on, on short-term contracts uh, in 2015. And that was probably one of the best things I did because it took away the pressure of the family politics. I could go into a contract, you know, for example, I know it's for six months because they've told me that. You know, and I've and I've applied knowing that, so I know it's for six months. And quite a lot of these jobs were actually kind of troubleshooting, so they had some cases that needed to be progressed or looked at. So I, there's a very specific brief that I was going in with, and I quite enjoyed that actually. And there was no, if I could say, office politics, nothing else. I wasn't there to prove anything. I wasn't there to do anything else other than my work and my hours. So I did that for a few years, um, various contracts. So across London at various various firms and various organisations. And the agency I was with was actually trying to get me to consider the GLD for a while, but I'd done claimant work pretty much all my life. And then, but it had intrigued me. And then I had some friends who went there uh, from claimant backgrounds, claimant PI backgrounds, and they were doing very well at GLD and enjoying it. And then they were telling me the type of work they do and the type of environment that it is. Yeah, so I thought, okay, this, this is possibly something that I might, you know, because I think originally the first, you know, kind of hesitation or question was, well, I'm, I've been, been, been claiming for 20 years, you know, but, you know, most of those skills are transferable. They really are. And um, so I went for the interview, they liked me and I got the job. So I've not looked back since actually. So, so I originally went in as agency staff, but now I'm, I'm, I'm permanent because, because I liked it so much. It's a weird one. Well, it, well, I thought it was a weird one, but actually quite a few my colleagues have made the same journey um, from various mm. various firms on on a claimant side, not just in personal injury, but in other other kind of um, litigation backgrounds. And they've they've joined the GLD and they're enjoying it and they're thriving. What does day to day life look like then? What's your typical day as a, a, a GLD lawyer? What what does it look like? I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but no two days are the same. But you knew I was going to say that, didn't you? <laughs> no two days are the same. But it, it's, it's um, so we're working remotely, although we're now also going back in to the office as well, two days a week. I mean, first thing, at the beginning of the lockdown, and we were already geared up for it because we were already working and we had the capability to, I mean, to work remotely anyway. So when lockdown came in, we were actually quite fortunate. We were already geared up and we just disappeared code on working but we're from home um so i work from home three days a week so i advise a range of clients but largely for the moj the ministry of justice and it could be anything from advising on a settlement of a claim 
to preparing for trial, drafting, it is quite wide because it's not just personal injury, I do general litigation as well. And I also uh, do inquest work, uh, which which I find really interesting as well. So there is a there's a mixed bag. Um, and, and the day could be, I mean, yesterday I was on the phone to a client for an hour to go and have some advice that I sent them last week just to get their instructions to make sure they understand. It's not too dissimilar from clients um, on the claimant side where you have a, a lay client. The clients here, um, you know, they're, they're part of the A department or, or maybe a prison. Um, so they're slightly different responsibilities I mean, considerations, but the law is the same and the advice is also likely to be the same. It is really enjoyable. I mean, what I enjoy the most perhaps is, is I mean, I've got a really good, good team that I work with. They're really supportive and we're always bouncing off each other um, ideas and, and just ways of doing things. But I think, you know, working for the government, you also have to be mindful of the government as well and the responsibilities that they have and the public purse quite often. So it's, it's a lot of claimants might think that it's a, a kind of bottomless pit and as a bit of an easy target, you know, they're going to pay out anyway, the government. But I think, you know, it's our job to ensure that, that you know, we, we take care of those kind of pennies as well because it's a public purse end of the day. I mean, for me, I feel a greater responsibility for that. You know, it's, it's like a civic duty, but I enjoy that and I enjoy all that as well. Now, I think, you know, I, I look back to my claimant days, um, which I enjoyed as well, but, you know, it it is different. and. I suppose it's part of my journey, isn't it? And, and it's good. Yeah, it's good. What would you say are the skills that you need to be a good lawyer for those budding, aspiring lawyers out there? What skills do you think you need to do the job well? I think it's really essential that you have good analytical skills, you know, because quite often you'll you'll be presented with, and it happens now, not too long ago, I, I sent two boxes of documents, um, of which about a third were actually relevant. So you're good at you need good analytical skills to try and, you know, sort out what's relevant, what's not. I think you need really good communication skills. I know it sounds quite obvious, but, you know, both both oral and written, kind of like spoken and written skills, because you need to get your point across, um, you know, whoever your client is, doesn't matter who your client is, you need to get your advice across concisely. Um, and I think you need some resilience, definitely. I mean, there will be knockbacks in this profession. There'll be highs and lows. Um, and this is probably more relevant in certain areas than others, but really good written drafting skills helps as well. But I suppose it's part of the communication side. But I think I think it's really important because um, I mentor some students uh, and quite often you know, see their CVs and, and their written work. And I do actually pull them up on it and say, look, you know, you really need to be careful as to how you're writing, what you're writing, what you want to get across. And and a CV especially is, is their first opportunity to make an impression. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of quite a stickler for that. So I think you, you really need to have your written work on point, I think. And do you have any standout moments during your career that particular cases, either as a personal injury lawyer or working for the GLD, do you have any moments that you'd like to share with us? So I measure my my career in kind of good moments, really, and not so good moments. Mm. And there are lots of good moments. Um, you know, any any successful case is a good moment. So, and that doesn't necessarily mean for me that as a claimant, you've 
you've recovered vast sums of money for your client or uh, I think if my client is happy with the job that I've done I think that's a good moment for me as a claimant then they were likely to recommend me to others but now as a defendant you know it's 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 still equally important that my client's happy with what I'm doing so I think in terms of cases there's one case that sticks to mind that was in my early days I just qualified it was in housing law actually we were successful in a judicial review against a local authority who was um, sending homeless applicants out to, to seaside resorts at the time because um, they said they got no housing in in borough and the reason why we had to make an application for judicial review in that case was that they had taken no consideration of the applicant's children of which two had exams one had a-level exams in the borough and one had gcse exams in the borough so they had them um, they shipped them off to Great Yarmouth, um, which was far, far away from their schools in Newham, um, and hadn't given any consideration to that. So, so we were successful with that. I mean, that was a good win. It was good because it was the right thing to do, you know, to expect a family of five to go to Great Yarmouth and then somehow get back to Newham to school to kind of see your exams was was quite nonsensical, really. I mean, that's a critical time and very unsettling for the whole family, particularly when you're studying and you, yes. know, you need to have stable stable time yeah. to concentrate um so very disruptive yeah and they were homeless through no fault of their own either it, it wasn't you know so mm. it, it was just just a sad sad set of circumstances which we we were lucky to to, to help them resolve actually but, but other than that i mean like i said i mean any you know whenever my my client's happy with the advice and the work that we've done i think that's a good moment yeah absolutely we've said before we we started this i did claimant personal injury as well and defendant and Actually, sometimes even the smaller cases, it might not be a huge win in terms of money compensation, but the gratitude that the client felt, you know, you get a bunch of flowers or a really nice card with some kind words, it really meant something to them. And sometimes those cases were very meaningful because you knew you'd made a a really positive difference to that individual. And that was very satisfactory. No, absolutely right. And actually, you've just kind of helped me remember one more. If I Oh, good. Yeah, I mean, this, this is probably, I mean, I think... The point you just made there is that it it can be it doesn't have to be a big case or or really complex case even because there's one one moment I remember as a trainee now I helped a single mother get her housing benefit reinstated as a trainee because I was doing some some welfare benefits law at the time as well so just a few phone calls and an email back in those days um, and it and it was kind of reinstated quite quickly and and she bought me a bottle of wine and I thought. I was really chuffed. Oh, wow. I was really chuffed because you know it was uh, it was quite um, quite a rundown area at the time where I worked, um, mm. kind of council estate, and and it, it was just a, it was such a lovely gesture, and I wasn't expecting it at all. And she and she waited for me in reception to hand it personally. She didn't just drop it off. She kind of really wanted to thank me. And yeah, so it says it's a small wins that mean just as much, I think, and always have done. Yeah, yeah. That would have really made a huge difference to her life and her child or children's life um and and it just took that legal expertise and that ability to know who to contact and make the necessary calls and emails which she obviously didn't have the the knowledge or the power to do that so yeah it's that that is very satisfactory and it's kind of why i originally wanted to go into law anyways to help people and and so when that happens it always makes you feel good and and you feel that that you're doing a good job and you're doing a worthwhile job on the outside you're a lawyer calm and cool 
but inside there's a passion to perform, a drive to be absolutely on your game. You prepare hour after hour, day after day in the pursuit of excellence, relying on superior resources, serious preparation, and total confidence. That's the advantage we give you. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. On the opposite side of that, are there any sort of low points or moments where you've had a disappointing result or felt frustrated perhaps you haven't been able to help somebody? Anything that you can think of? There have been various times when, when a client doesn't take your advice. That's always disappointing <laughs> when they're kind of going against what your advice is. And our advice was based on the law, so you're trying to explain to them. But no, I, I can't think of anything that really sticks sticks to mind. I'm sure there are a few, but I, I can't, yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking when you say that, it's triggered a memory when you advise that the client has low prospects of success and they, you know, maybe... They probably don't understand just because you've had an accident and yes, it wasn't your fault. Maybe those adverts yeah. are to blame. There has to be, you know, you have to look at things like causation. You've got to look at, you know, legal duty and all of those issues that we, we have to, to examine and then give them the proper advice. They, they might not accept that and, and still feel aggrieved that they've been injured. Yeah. You know, not understanding that or not accepting the advice, but then that's their option. You just have to advise them accordingly and then they have to you know, go somewhere else. You touched upon something there, actually, with the adverts. Now, I I, um, I started out as a trainee when there were no adverts. I, I think I think you weren't, or law firms weren't allowed to advertise their, their services, and it was just the old yellow pages back in those days, and kind of word of mouth and, and passing trade or footfall, you know, to a high street, high street, etc. And then, so I did notice um, an increase once the adverts started coming up on TV and the radio. So, you know, it did, well, suppose, you know, the advertisers would say what well, it's done, what we, what, we, what we set out to do, you know, it's, it's got people thinking about, you know, if they can make a claim and stuff. But then I think with the increased awareness, there's a risk that you always get um, claims that perhaps don't always have a, have a merit. And I think the expectation was kind of increased by the adverts in that, like you say, I've had an accident. I should be compensated for it. You know, it doesn't always work out like that, and 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 that's where the advice, yeah. Um, although difficult, you know, you have to give it, and then it's 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 up to the client whether they accept it or not, I suppose. And I think, what going back to this, one of the skills as a lawyer, I think it's also managing clients' expectations. Yeah, you know, they're, they're, there's nothing worse than hyping up, um, potentially saying, "Well, you have a really good claim," or you know, misleading or not managing that client's expectations the kind of thing to do and the responsible thing to do is actually say well this is what it is yeah that is the legal advice um you know otherwise they'll be very disappointed later on down the line so um that's that's probably a skill that people people should have as a lawyer as hard as it can be to break that news to to the client who's really hopeful and, and expecting some sort of compensation and um, i just want to turn ranjit now to your role um, with the Society for Asian Lawyers, because you're the president there. And I think you've been the president there is it since 2016. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So I got involved. Um, I've been a committee member since 2014 and a member, I think, uh, before that, for another five years before that. Yeah. So it's an organisation. It's a not-for-profit organisation. We represent the interests of lawyers, uh, Asian lawyers in England, Wales, 
and the main aim is to help increase diversity throughout the profession. Now we know, I mean, there's various studies, and the SRA do one um, every year or two on the on the stats as to how diverse the profession is. But all the data shows that there are now good numbers of um, Asian and Black lawyers and other ethnic minority lawyers entering the profession. But there is still a lot of work to be done at the top of the profession in the boardrooms, so equity partnership level and, and partnership level. And, you know, the representation is 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 good in small high street firms. But when you kind of delve deeper into the data and see the larger firms, 50 partners plus, that's where the numbers really tail off quite quite rapidly. So there is still work to be done and it's it's across the profession. And we know so at the lower end or the or or the entry level is good now and we know that. But but we're working on other ways of kind of ensuring that the pipeline is still there and you know there is a the pathway to success in the upper upper reaches of the profession and this also includes the uh, judges so the judiciary there were the recent stats out again where there's been some progress but i think it's about eight percent now of the profession are from a black asian or minority ethnic background against the general population of about 14 or 15 percent i know it's not as easy as just saying you know, the general population is this, so it should be this. But the the progress, and they've been been monitoring this now for quite a while, um, for over ten years, and and the progress has been extremely slow in the judiciary. And again, like in law firms, um, you will find that black and minority ethnic lawyers are quite well represented in the tribunals, in that kind of level. But uh, when you go up higher at, at recorder level high court judges etc and 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 crown court judges those numbers dwindle quite quite significantly so there's lots of work to do and we, and we 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 do um work quite closely with the SRA um as well and the law society on various issues on various diversity issues it's not a quick fix but i think you know there is movement in the right direction but it is exceptionally slow um, and I, I think that's been the biggest kind of criticism, really, of the overall profession is that progress is, is just far, far too slow. So what kind of things do you do then for the, the Society for Asian Lawyers? You you hold events, do you give advice to uh, people from ethnic minorities? What Could you tell us a little bit about what you actually do? And you work with the SRA closely in the Law Society. So certainly one thing that, that we did, and um, a uh, 2017 2018 was that we held a series of events called diversity in the judiciary and and the aim of that was so we had a panel of of asian and and a black um i think asian judges on that occasion and and the aim of that was to raise awareness first of all for our members to at least consider a role on the bench as a judge so we and we also had someone from the judicial appointments commission and the other people who are, who are responsible for kind of appointing uh, so, so judges so we had someone there quite senior to explain what the process was what's expected and then we had a a panel of three or four asian judges who were speaking out, who spoke about their experiences and and those events were really to to try and encourage and inspire people to apply and that was done in collaboration with the um so jac as well so and they reported back to us afterwards that as a result of those events and other outreach events that they were holding there had been an increase in applicants from um, Asian backgrounds, which is good. So that's the first step, isn't it? Let's get people applying. However, 
when I then asked, you know, then we then delved into the next set of figures, although there had been an increase in applicants, the output was still the same or marginally the same, uh, or I think marginal increase. So there's something not quite right. I'm, I'm trying to trying to find out, you know, where the problem is um, at the moment. But on other things we do, we have a mentoring scheme that that is open to everybody, no matter what stage of, of your profession you are. So students right up to maybe senior associates trying to make up to partner. So we try and cater for everybody. So yeah, and it's about you know trying to trying to help our members reach the next step of their career, you know, whatever whatever career that might be. Um, and we also have yeah. general kind of networking events as well, so like a fun events. Um, and we have Asian Legal Awards coming up in October as well, which is our, our our flagship event where we celebrate and champion Asian lawyers in the profession. Now that's really helpful. So those listening, um, how to reach out to you and what you what you offer as well. Ranjit, what advice would you give to a lawyer from a, a black or Asian or minority ethnic background? And firstly, how, how to enter the legal profession? And once they're in it, how can they thrive? What nuggets, pearls of wisdom can you offer? Yeah, I think, I mean... It's a big question, but... It is a big question, yeah. <laughs> I think, how do I put that in there? Um, Right. In thirty seconds, how do you answer 30 that? Thirty seconds is not enough. Oh gosh. Okay. But well, no, you can have a little bit longer. Generally, I mean, you you know, it's hard work. I mean, it is so competitive anyway. The the profession when I joined it, I mean, I was explained to my mentees. I mean, when I first joined the profession many many moons ago, there were only a finite number of of institutions who did the LPC. I think there were maybe about ten or fifteen. Uh, I can't remember now, but it was it was mainly the College of Law, which is now the University of Law, and there were a few extras on top of that. So there were maybe ten or twelve. Now there are far, far more. Um, I know the LPC is now going to become the SQE quite soon, but you know, so the numbers of LPC graduates have increased maybe fivefold, tenfold. So already the numbers game it's it's much much more more kind of you know, much more competitive. I think you need, need resilience as well. You need to have a thick skin. You need to be prepared for some, some knockbacks, but but keep going. Now, what I wasn't aware of at the time, because it wasn't really a thing back then, is networking. I think networking is extremely important. I was quite shy as well when I first, you know, so I didn't want to ask for help. I, you know, I felt I had to do it on my own. No, there is help out there. We can help you. There are other organisations like ours who will help you. I'd say look for a mentor as soon as possible. It's never too soon to have a mentor. How do you get one? If you were to meet someone at a networking event and you had a bit of a bit of a rapport, you could ask them. I mean, it, it really is about asking. I, I I would say don't be shy. Um, and don't be reserved in that because just um think of it as your career, how are you gonna progress? And you're gonna have to ask those questions. I was very shy and very reserved back in back when I first started, so I would never have dreamed of asking even if i'd known to ask because at the time you know there was no such thing as networking there was no such thing as networking events you know the organizations were few and far between there is a lot of support out there right now um and i think a lot of firms are also very um, engaged in diversity and inclusion as well which is helpful because they because those conversations are now free-flowing um in a lot of organizations including the gld which i'm very happy about so um, hard work, resilience, networking, 
don't be shy get a mentor as, as soon as you can really and a sponsor a sponsor is slightly different to a mentor a sponsor is someone who's going to champion you and push you forward a mentor mm. uh, is slightly different and also join us so to join Society of Asian Lawyers, it's free to join. And I'm always open to having those conversations across LinkedIn or any which way you can get a hold of me. Brilliant. That's a great answer. Very succinct and precise, just what I expect a lawyer to give. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you. And talking of events, I know um, there's an event coming up. I think it's September now, or you're, you're looking to confirm the date. Um, sexual misconduct in the workplace. We were speaking before about how big a problem this is. And I know there has been some research. Um, the International Bar Association carried out some research in 2018. They conducted the largest ever global survey on bullying and sexual harassment in the profession. They interviewed around 7,000 individuals from 135 countries, and that was across the spectrum of legal workplaces. They found that bullying and sexual harassment are absolutely rife in the legal profession. It was quite sober reading. One in three female respondents were sexually harassed in the workplace context, one in 14 male respondents. And um, it will be referred to in the, in the notes, but um, they produced the Us Too report, which looked at 10 recommendations to achieve positive change. Um, so that's useful. The evidence is there that this is a problem in the legal profession. Um, so that event, um, how did that come about? Would, would you like to tell listeners why you decided to choose this topic? What sparked our interest as a committee? Uh, I, th- I think it was it was just before lockdown because plans were afoot then, but then they all got put in the back burner because because of lockdown. But there were there was a case that hit the headlines where um, a barrister was suspended for three months um, for I think sexually assaulting a, a a junior barrister in chambers, and and that really that shocked us at the time as a committee. I think it was just the leniency of suspension perhaps but but just the brazen act of it all as well and it got us talking to our members as well at at, um, at an event that you know just before lockdown and I think this is something that goes under the radar quite a lot because not a lot of people talk about it for obvious reasons I think the victims quite often don't want to talk about it because they're 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 quite junior um, they're intimidated and they're scared of what it might mean for their career and I think that's really sad and 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 really um, horrible for them to feel like that. So we were talking as a committee, and it it turned out that it was a lot more common than we first thought, or perhaps a lot more common than we wanted to admit originally. So that's where the kind of uh, idea was. I mean, first came about it was like uh, I think early 2020, or so around that time, or, or late 2019. But it's taken a bit of time to put it together now. I know the SRA are looking at this again as a policy. So um, it's an event with uh, speakers from the SRA and from the Bar Standards Board as well who are taking it very seriously. It's And it's something that I think needs to be talked about. It's 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 not, you know, I've not seen any other organisation put an event on like this. Um, and it's not just that we want to be the first. I think it is such an important issue. It's much more common than we'd like to believe. And we know that just from, just from a few conversations we've had, um, more than a few, but it, it, I mean, once you start talking, more people come to you and then more people come to you and say, well, okay, this is what happened to me. And some of it's historic, some of it is still relevant, some of it is now. So the SRA will be talking about their policies um, and how to deal with it. Um, and we'll have an employment lawyer as well on the panel. So there'll be people from the yeah. SRA 
from the Bar Sounds Board and Employment Lawyer as well to talk about the whole the issue in the round. Um, and it's not just the physical, it, you know, it's it's any any misconduct. It can be I mean, lewd remarks that are made to kind of, you know, like a part of harassment that will make you feel in a certain way. Um, so it, it kind of encompasses everything. Mm, I think that's going to be a really useful event, not for people who have been experiencing this harassment, but also for people in HR or leadership or people trying to change toxic cultures yes. and to ensure that people are comfortable and actually know where the boundaries are and how people can act appropriately and how do we deal with that. It sounds like an event for all, which is great. Just going to say, just because we're not, you know, we may not be talking about it, doesn't mean it's not happening. Absolutely right. Um, and, and hopefully it will get maybe the HR people thinking about revising their policies you know, have we got, you know, is our policy strong enough? You know, are we taking this seriously enough? Is the yeah. message strong enough across our yeah. firm or organisation that in this, this won't be tolerated? I mean, hopefully it will be a bit of a jolt to everybody to just make sure that, that they're not, that it's not flying under the radar and, and it is something that's being addressed at every level. Brilliant. Well, I'd, if I'm available and I, if I can, I'd love to come to that event. It sounds definitely, really you know. interesting. It'd be nice to meet you in person. I've just invited myself there. And lastly, we're coming up to time here, but I'd just like to ask you, how how do you relax and keep mentally and physically well? I mean, it's a demanding job what you do. Um, I'm sure it keeps you very busy, very stimulated, but how do you wind down? What do you do? Uh, gosh, yeah. I kind of throw myself into my kids. Um, I've got two boys, they're twins. But for my sins, I also coach their football team, which is actually more stress but also exceptionally enjoyable so so the weekend I'm out out with them and the team training and playing matches that helps a lot but also I think um well-being and mental health is so important and you know it it's been discussed much more openly and freely now and over the last few years but before it never was um so I'm really happy about that because because I you know I like everyone else suffer from from times when when I need need that reset you know when when you're not you know when when things are getting on top of you um and and I'm not in the best mental health place so 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 I like to stop and reset and and a type of things that help me like I said is the football training but also like to just, sh- just shut myself off for maybe half an hour or so and do something I really enjoy so usually can I listen to music on my headphones favorite music or uh I speak to friends and family just you know it's just it's, um, um, sometimes it's, it's it's reconnecting with what you know what you know and, yeah. and what's comforting to you so friends family music family yeah so and that kind of thing but also I've also found some really useful um meditation podcasts that, that are really yeah. good it just doesn't pop us in your headphones and they're quite short some of them they can be three minutes they can be 10 minutes and it just really really helps me a lot I think it's really important that everybody resets. I listened to this wonderful coach at an event I was at recently, and her name escapes me, but she's she put it so fantastically well. She was a lawyer herself, and she burnt out, and she went away, and now she's coaching lawyers how to avoid burnout is a whole, whole premise of what she does. And she said this as well, that lawyers should treat their minds like an athlete because 
you know, the work we do is so intense, it's so full on, it's so long. So an athlete would never dream of going into competition without proper rest, recuperation and training. We should be the same. We should treat our minds in the same way. So, and that really resonated with me because mm. I think a reset is so important at the end of the day and, and it should be daily. You should, you should ho- hopefully find time to reset so you can go again the next day. So I, I would, yeah. I would, in, I would encourage everyone to to maybe give give yourselves half an hour into the day, or even ten fifteen minutes to do what you want to do, not work related, something that will just um, get you back in tune with yourself. Good advice, and it's the compound effect, isn't it? When you do ten minutes a day, just taking yourself away and doing something for you, that really can yeah. make a difference to how you, as you say, reset. Fantastic advice, um, Ranjit. Thank you for being a wonderful guest. Thank you. Really enjoyed our conversation. I'm sure we're going to meet up at some point. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me, and yeah, hope you have a good day. So thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed making it. And as ever, we really would love to hear from you with your feedback. So please get in touch in the usual way. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.